passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome in to the Otzen Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Bream. Eric Scope on the show as always. And welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the stream. Uh, make sure to hit the like and subscribe button for your podcast or YouTube, wherever you're watching this or listening to this. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Those are other ways that you can listen to the podcast as well. Uh, highly, highly encourage you to do that. Very helpful for us. Uh, today is Wednesday. That means it's hump day, which also means you've mailed in your mailbag questions to Eric. Uh, we've got a good amount of questions of wide ranging topics. It feels like uh, football, some basketball, as well as some recruiting uh, for these sports. And uh, Eric, it's that time of year right now where I think there's just a lot going on and a lot of interest in a wide range of things with from the Oregon fan base. Yeah, the message boards have been real fun the last right. couple of days. There's just been a lot going on, a lot of basketball, men's and women's stuff, obviously the spring game and a lot of discussion there. And you can go check out duckterritory.com to get a lot of kind of review coverage from the spring game of kind of us analyzing things. I just finished my offensive and defensive two deep predictions. So if you're kind of interested in the depth chart and how that might play out, that's up there. Matt's been getting a bunch of stuff for the men's basketball transfer list. He just puts, I think, 10.0. I can't believe we've already gotten to 10, but <laughs> we're going to maybe get to 20.0 the way this offseason is going. Um, but, yeah, so a bunch of stuff on the site. But we're going to start football on the first – probably the first half of the show or so. Yeah. Based on questions, is going to be fully football. So get ready for that. First one from at Dill Williamson. How likely is it that we have some transfers by fall, maybe even a quarterback transferring out? Hashtag odds and audible. The first part, like I, I think it's almost a hundred percent foregone conclusion. Right? Yeah, they're they're going to lose somebody, and probably more than one somebody. Like there'll be multiple players that leave. That happens every spring. We see that everywhere. A lot of the guys, I'm sure, right now who are kind of up in the air are are in the midst of making that decision process, and it's not an easy one necessarily because you might feel like based upon how the spring played out, you're in great position to play, but there's a bunch of new guys coming in, or the opposite might be true, where you might have felt like, hey, I didn't get enough opportunity in the spring, but Hey, I could make a big growth this offseason right. and maybe I jump in and suddenly I am playing a lot. So I, there's certainly going to be some guys transfer. I don't want to speculate on who. Um, the second part, though, Matt, and that's kind of where I wanted to focus on, do we expect any of these guys to transfer the quarterbacks, the four guys we saw on Saturday? Because I, I would be a little surprised if we don't enter fall with the same four, um, at least on the roster. Yeah, I think it would be a pretty surprising move um, if one of these four guys left. I, I think – the likely scenario for this position to see a transfer before spring football finished or now that spring football is over and fall camp opens up is probably a scenario in which one of those three freshmen was so far behind the rest of the group. 
mm-hmm. and he looks at the deal and it's like, look, like I love it in Oregon, but I also want to play and I'm way behind these guys and I'm, I'm just not, I'm not you know going to make it because they've got another guy in Tanner Bailey coming in and I, I'm just going to go somewhere maybe that is less crowded of so many guys in the same kind of age range as me. Um, but that wasn't the case. I, did, I, I didn't get that feeling watching spring football was that all f- three of these freshman quarterbacks, Jay Butterfield, Robbie Ashford, and the true freshman Ty Thompson, they're all neck and neck fighting for two, the number two spot. And if you look at it in a manner of Anthony Brown's going to be the guy that wins the job and it's going to be the guy that starts game one and starts game 13 or 14 or 15, whatever Oregon plays – total number of games, all three of those guys look at this and say, if I can just wait one year, I've got an opportunity to be a three-year starter, potentially a four-year starter if I want to be at Oregon for that long. Like, it's just what what's on the docket here? Wait one year for four years of starting or transfer and wait a couple years and, and what have you. So I, I would be pretty shocked if any of these – uh, freshman quarterbacks transfer now will one of them transfer next year I think that's a possibility um, that's just speculation that's not he- us hearing anything but when Anthony Brown graduates and they have this quarterback battle again and a, and a you know the next guy in succession is figured out the shakedown from that will, will you know could lead to a transfer I, I guess just like the one thing to maybe monitor is like, does Robbie Ashford get drafted in July's MLB draft to a point right. where he decides to pursue that would be the most, that would to be the most likely thing that would split up the quarterback group is if like Robbie Ashford just goes, Hey, and honestly, I think it might be the wrong choice because I, I thought he showed a lot of promise, more promise than I had expected in the spring game. So like, to me, I would say pump the brakes there, play this out, see if maybe you can win the quarterback job in 2022 um, or, or, or even hang around a little bit and, and, and chase it longer. But like, that would be the one thing I would say, like, maybe he goes, hey, I know this quarterback thing looks great. I know I, I had moments, but boy, I've got some direct money here playing Major League Baseball, or at least starting in the minors, obviously. I want to pursue that. You know, maybe his heart's more with baseball than football. I'm not, I don't know that. But, I mean, this is just the hypothetical thing of, like, that's something to monitor. I think in terms of, like, I, I'm in total agreement with you, though, Matt. Like, I don't think any of them showed that they were incapable of winning this job in 2022 so stick around see what happens and, and i don't know what the baseball draft rules are i'm not 100 percent up to speed on that but part of me thinks i don't think he can even go this season i think because baseball is different than the other sports where if you go pro, if if you choose to go to college and not go pro you aren't eligible for the draft i think for like two years like you've, you've got to be like a redshirt sophomore or a redshirt junior or a true junior, excuse me, to be eligible. And then after that, you can go as a junior or, or as a senior. Um, I, I think you have to complete two years of some form of college or be two years removed from high school to be eligible for the draft. And so it might be a case if, I, if maybe I'm wrong, but it might be a case in which he might not have a choice with the MLB draft now that he's, he's in college. 
Yeah, I'm trying right now to figure out exactly how this works. Because uh, both of us, baseball is not our top thing. I know a lot of people who love baseball and, and would be are probably like screaming at their screens right now or their, their devices going like, you guys don't know what you're talking about, blah, 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 blah. Um, and <laughs> this that's, is the case. And, and that's fine. Like, I get it. Like, this is admittedly not my expertise. I don't, Oregon baseball is not something I follow that closely. Major League Baseball has not been something I follow that closely either. Um, yeah, so this is what I got here. And I, this is from a Wikipedia page. So I don't even know if we should read it, but I, it says players at four year colleges and universities are eligible three years after first enrolling in such institution or after their 21st birthday, whichever occurs f- first. Um, so I think, he, I think you're right, man. I don't think he actually has that possibility until like 2023. So maybe that's not even an option either. So discount that whole tangent too. The MLB site lists uh, high school players if they have graduated from high school and have not yet attended college or junior college, college players from four-year colleges who have either completed their junior or senior years or are at least 21 years old. So Robbie Ashford has to be at least 21 years old or has to have completed his junior year to be eligible for the MLB draft. So if you're looking at it from that standpoint, he's got a long ways to go until he's got a discussion with the MLB. Okay. Well, so there's that. So yeah, I, I, and, and so just the original question. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I think, I think all these guys will stick around. I don't think there's incentive for them to leave. And if there is, then I'm kind of miffed at the decision-making next one from at Brandon Slupe. While it's very early, how likely is it that Troy Franklin or Dante Thornton take over one of the starting receiver spots? Hashtag Ots and audibles. Um, I assume it's talking this year. Yeah. Um, <sighs> guys are really really good i'm not going to be surprised if like either one of them is playing a huge role by the end of the season with that said like it's not like they're playing a position where oregon has like below average like players that they'd be replacing like the guys they'd have to replace like devin williams johnny johnston micah Pittman, jalen red like those four guys those are some really good players like johnny johnston and jalen red have been here for a long time they're established they're big they're big parts of the room in terms of being leaders um, and then Devin Williams and Micah Pittman weren't that different in terms of recruiting ranking from either of these two guys. So, um, yeah, I would take probably quite a bit. And to me, like the, the biggest thing, like in, in the way from them doing so is not their talents or their abilities, but it's like just how good the guys around them are that they'd have to beat out. So like, how likely is it? I, I could see it and probably the most direct path to this might be just like somebody gets injured or, or something like that. But like, I don't know, Matt, like I, I just think there's so much talent above these guys. It would take quite a bit for them to beat them out. But at the same time, I can't like, I can't diminish. Like I was really, really impressed with how good they looked on Saturday. Like that's about as good a debut as you're going to get from, from wide receivers at this level. I, if the question was with Dante Thornton or Troy Franklin start a game in 2021, I would say it's extremely likely. Highly likely. And I'm not a percentage guy, but I would put it up like 90% that one of those guys starts a game in 2021. Will those guys be full-time starters? I don't think so. Um, And and I think that's kind of the range of, of, or kind of the, I give you the idea of what they're going to be like, what kind of player they're going to play a lot. There's going to be a game where that, you know, they may start or they may start two or three games, like you said, because of injury, or, or, you know, illness or, or health reasons, whatever. Um, but I don't think they're going to be a full-time starter because we were having this conversation last year at this time about Devin Williams and Brian Addison and Micah Pittman 
and J.R. Waters and Lance Wilhoyt stepping up and showing out and rising to the top and pushing Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red further down the pecking order. I mean, you and I both were saying that we thought Jalen Red and and Johnny Johnson would be the opening day starters for for Oregon at, at receiver, but that we felt like both if or one of them would probably slide down the pecking order in a go-to manner and a Devin Williams or a Micah Pittman would elevate or Brian Addison would elevate themselves to be that go-to guy or the top two receiver targets at the end of the year. And that just didn't happen. A, I think because Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red were that good and B, the younger guys, they had for whatever reason, you know, some inconsistency to their fault or not to their fault. Like Pittman, it was a contact tracing thing. Like he, he literally couldn't get on the field for because of contact tracing. Um, and, and and so I, I I land with Thornton and Franklin will will be key pieces to this offense. They will probably each start one game um, in the at, at minimum in this season. But to say that they're going to be full time starters, I think that's a disservice to what. Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red and Micah Pittman and Devin Williams and Chris Hudson. I haven't even named Chris Hudson yet at this point. And this is the this is the great thing about the receiving core is <laughs> it's completely yeah. loaded where you've got a hard time. Like I think Eric four or five years ago, right? Thornton and Franklin show up and they're automatic starters. I mean, think back to the year when you had Dylan Mitchell and it was Dylan Mitchell and basically he was the only one who you relied upon. Mm -hmm. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. And if you were to insert those guys now, they'd probably be receivers two and three behind Dylan Mitchell. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, that's how good these guys are and that's how different the situation is. And that's why, like, I hesitate there. Like, if this was that year and the question is how likely it is, I'd say it's like 100% those guys are going to end up being, if if the receiving core is what it was in 2017. Like, yeah, that's going to be what, or 2018, I guess. Yeah, that's what it's going to be. Um. But the fact that this group has really improved and Brian McClendon and company have developed it and you've now can look up and legit go like, is Isaiah Crocker who caught three passes for 60 yards and Josh Delgado who started games in the path. Are those guys like your numbers nine and 10 receivers on the team? I mean, that's, that says a lot. So yeah, to the original question, I think those guys, you can expect a lot from those guys right away, but maybe not full-time starters this fall, but the following year when you, there's a little bit more opening, I think you can certainly kind Highly of pencil, likely that pencil them in there. Yeah. All right. Third one from at who's the Voss new defense looks like it's just two defensive linemen at any given time is Oregon's deep is Oregon deep enough, athletic enough and experienced enough at linebacker to account for that. Um, I just did some of the numbers here. And at first I, I think actually, before I jump into that, the context here of what, who's the Voss is saying, he's correct in terms of I've gone and watched the game in person and rewatched it. Oregon played two down linemen and two standing edge rushers the entire game. So that, that, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau, is he an outside linebacker? Is he defensive lineman? Like at least on Saturday, it looked pretty clearly like he's, he's playing outside linebacker. Um, and you know, he was out there standing. Adrian Jackson would replace him with the twos or replace him when, when Kayvon kind of sat out for most of the second half um, of, of the game or pretty much the entire second half. So, like, yeah, the, the early returns are that who's the Voss is correct. This is this is like almost like a two, four, five defense. Um, and one of those four, those outside linebackers is like a converted edge rusher guy, like a K-Bon and got Mace standing on the other side. So that's kind of what they're doing. And now, now to the question of like, are they deep enough? Um, Oregon actually has as many outside linebackers set to be on the 2021 team as they do total defensive down linemen. So, <laughs> so the, 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 the depth number is even like they both have 10. 
there, there are two defensive line starting spots, two starting edge rusher spots. Both have 10 scholarship guys. So like depth wise, they're fine. Are they athletic enough? Like, yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. Like Kayvon Thibodeau is probably pound for pound your most athletic guy on the team. Maybe Adrian Jackson, certainly in the discussion there as well. Um, maybe you can ask about like Mason and, and Jake Shipley, who were also with the second, who are like kind of like they, they, they were the opposite side. Maybe you can question if those guys are athletic enough, but like, I think certainly they looked fine. So the question for me is the experience part. And this is where things get a little interesting because you're kind of going, okay, Kayvon Thibodeau doesn't have experience playing this position, but he and Mace Funa basically played or been pseudo starters now for this will be their third season. So like, I think there are plenty of experience there. It's just now behind them. Like, do we think Trevin Maai and Jake Shipley and Adrian Jackson and Jaden Navarrete are good enough? And then there's four true freshmen that are enrolling this summer too. So, um, I think they're plenty deep enough. They're plenty athletic enough. I just don't know if they're experienced enough, but I don't also feel like you worry too much about a group when, when KT and Mace Funa are your headliners. It's a pretty darn yeah. good one to punch. If Mace Funa and KT uh, are your headliners, you're in a good spot. I mean, you're looking at the potential number one overall draft pick in the 2022 NFL draft in KT, and I am not going to put it past Mace Funa of being an NFL draft prospect as a true junior in that 2022 NFL draft as well. So you're loaded there from a talent perspective, um, an athletic perspective at the, at those two spots. I, I'm all in on Adrian Jackson, full trust there um, as him uh, being a guy that's on the football field, playing outside linebacker. Um, like you, you wonder where's Trevor, my where's Jaden Everett. Um, Jackson LaDuke. And I think the interesting thing with, with Jackson LaDuke was he was talking about playing inside linebacker, right? Like he, he that's where he's playing. Yeah. yeah. He's so like, that was a guy that we were looking at as, as an outside linebacker and is now playing on the inside um, for, for whatever reason you may have. Um, I also want to throw out the caveat of like, this is probably the, the base defense or something very close to the base defense that Oregon will use under defensive coordinator, Tim DeRuiter, because Cristobal even admitted it before the game. And I think he said it afterwards too, of they showed absolutely nothing on film for opponents to prepare for, for Tim DeRuiter's defense at Oregon in the spring game, because why would they, why would you give Fresno state uh, it's May 4th while we're recording this podcast, why would you give them, nearly five months of prep time for what they're going to face, and especially Ohio State, you know, five months and a week later, um, prep time for what Oregon's going to be doing. So from a wrinkles and from a scheme, you know, schematic standpoint, it's going to look different. It's going to look completely different from what we saw in that spring game. So I I throw that out there. Um, I also kind of wonder, like, yeah, KT was listed as an outside linebacker. KT had his hand up. He was standing for most of the time. But is it really an outside linebacker if he's still in the same gap that a defensive end is in? Like, like what? It, it feels like we're we're you know you're you're just deploying him from the same spot in a different manner, and all of a sudden his position change and think he's going to be dropping back into pass coverage. Well, isn't this exactly the same conversation we had? Like 
this, this is how everything comes in cycles. Ten years ago, wasn't there like is Deion Jordan a defensive end? Or I was just better? thinking that right now. Like <laughs> I was literally thinking about how there was uh, this one reporter of, of a site that was just adamant about Oregon running a three four defense, and Deion Jordan was a DN, and it was like a two year feud with Chip Kelly, uh, back and forth. And that's what exactly what I was thinking of. Like this is starting to turn into the Dion Jordan is Oregon running a three, four or a four, three defense. Yeah. We're in that same exact spot, except for now it's a two, four or a three, three. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is a slightly different, um, but I think Matt, Matt, Matt brings up a good point in terms of we, we need to be careful with how much we take away from the spring game and like say, this is a, this is what they're doing. This is their base defense. This is what they're running from. I think it's, it's plausible probably, um, that we see them do different things and that there are multiple different schemes that they play a lot of. And that we're not just going to be seeing them with a two, four kind of front that we might see them play something a little bit more, um, you know, varied up front, especially on the defensive line. I think you have the, the body certainly to, to mix around and go three down line, maybe go four down line. I was just going to say, like, I, I have thoughts about when they play Stanford or when they play Utah um, or, you know, whatever, you know, Washington is a team that would fit this where they all of a sudden go, okay, we're going to put KT, you know, he's going to be a defensive end. We're going to go Popo. We're going to go Christian Williams and we're going to go Brandon Dorless and we're going to drop off maybe a, a, a Mace Funa or an Adrian Jackson at, at the outside and roll with one outside linebacker and two inside linebackers and they go heavy against, you know, a team and that, that could be, that could be their predominant, you know, their, their dominant rotation where in that specific game, and then they go up in, against Washington state. And, and maybe it's a case in which it's Popo Amave is the one guy that's got his hand on the ground. And then they've got Mace Funa and Kayvon Thibodeau as the two edge rusher outside linebackers. And you've got an extra DB in there now, all of a sudden. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot left to learn with the scheme. And I think we can say the same thing on offense. That was pretty vanilla too. So like, we're going to draw some conclusions that are, that are like sound more significant than they are based upon what we've seen. But like, the reality is I don't know what else you want us to do uh, because it's like, we haven't, we don't get the same access as we used to get. And, and frankly, even if it was a new defense, we wouldn't know until we watched a few games in the fall. I I think we're going to have a much better idea, like by October, of what exactly this defense is and, and a better answer to that question. Not that I think we're wrong in terms of the depth and experience and you know, talent and experience of the outside group. Cause I think that part still stands, but I think fair to just at least, you know, acknowledge that like they could be doing some, some vastly different things by the time we get into October. All right. Fourth run from at flock of ducks. As much as I hope U of O wins a natty in my lifetime, I feel like even with how great they have been recruiting lately, they are still so far behind Alabama, Georgia, Ohio state, et cetera. Talent-wise, I'm afraid Rose Bowl wins are always going to be our ceiling. Please say I'm wrong. Um, not a single question in there, so not really like part of the question part, but I think a decent – I get the point here, and I think we should jump into this one, Matt. Um, we've spoken we, – I mean, we talk about it basically every fall. Like the, the, the overarching narrative is they want to play for a national championship. They want to be one of the four college football playoff teams. We've talked about significantly in the past of like, yeah, we think that they're capable of at least being a college football caliber team of getting there. They weren't that far off even in 2019. They lose that game in Arizona, Arizona State. If they win it, they probably, assuming they then beat, you know, the last couple of opponents, Oregon State and, and Utah in the conference championship game, like it took place 
um, that season that they, they are in the football, they are in the college football playoffs. So I, I think certainly it feels like they're in that discussion, but like, man, I, I'll say one thing. It was a little discouraging watching how dominating Alabama was this last year. And even the year before how dominating LSU was, um, those two programs faced like supposedly the next best teams and they, they kind of ran over them, Alabama, even more than LSU the year before. And I think I came away being like the top, top tier teams are just really, really good. And you see it in the NFL draft, like Alabama, like half a dozen guys in the first round draft picks last two years. I was going to say they have like a dozen draft picks that are first rounders every year. And it's like, how are you supposed to compete with that? So like, I, I, I do think that's a legitimate question of like, I don't know, Matt, like what's your confidence level that they actually ever do win a national championship? Cause like, I'm not saying they can't, but I do think the, 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 that flock of ducks brings up a decent question of like, you watch the way Alabama and LSU dominated the last couple of years. And I know some of these other games have been really close, but it does seem like the top tier teams are like a tier above the Oregon's. And it feels like Oregon's right on that next group, but like, I don't know, are they even, if they get there, are they going to play well enough to really challenge? Cause those teams are just really, really good. So Oregon went into the 2020 football season. Um, 24-7 Sports has this great tool called College Team Talent. And it, and it basically ranks out who are the most talented teams in college football. And shocking, Alabama is at the top nearly every single year. Um, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State. You know, these are the teams that are consistently in the college football playoff. And they're consistently in the top five, top ten, LSU, um, Penn State, Oklahoma. Oregon was 12th going into 2020. And I expect that number I – think, I think Oregon will crack into the top 10 in 2021. Our rankings for that don't get finalized until sometime in like the midsummer time when basically we know for pretty close to certainty who has enrolled at every school, who from that previous recruiting class – uh, didn't get into school, what guys transferred in, what guys transferred out. So kind of around midsummer is when that comes out. Um, but I kind of expect Oregon to be in that top 10. And I don't really see uh, Oregon's recruiting momentum slowing down anytime soon. You know, I, I still continue to see them landing top 10 recruiting classes. And it's three years, right, that they've led the conference in recruiting um, you know, if they do that for a fourth time and they finish with a third straight top 10 recruiting class, like now you're getting into the ballpark where you have the talent to compete for that next three or four years to win a league type, to win a you know college football playoff championship game. Now, Alabama is so far and ahead of everybody else. It's like it's that it's that deal where it just does it, it recruits for itself now because of past success and you know, Saban doesn't really have to do much other than flash the rings and flash the NFL draft picks and the talent that's on his team. And you're going to get better in practice than you are in games and, and type of mentality. But I do think they're still beatable if you can get close to, to their level because games are, are imperfect. You know, how, we, we often see teams that are the better program or the better player or the better franchise for whatever reason struggle with this team or this opponent or this individual opponent. Um, and guys are guys have bad days. That's the great thing about sports is it's not always just done on paper, done on data. Um, it's done on you know, execution. And so I think if Oregon can get into that top 10, consistently stay in that top 10, and I think they will, as long as Mario Cristobal is the head coach, 
then they're going to have a legit chance. Like I've never really gone into the 2019 season thinking that they were a lock to make the college football playoff. I think their best chance to, to have won the college football playoff was 2014 when they had Mariota. And that was because the talent level at that point from Alabama and from Clemson and from Ohio state hadn't really separated itself as much as it, as it has now. Um, and I also think something that will help is the exclusivity of getting to the college football playoff when they're open, they're, they're going to open it up. There's going to be more than four teams that make the college football playoff. And once that happens, recruits can look at things and go, I don't have to go to Alabama or I don't have to go to Clemson. I don't have to go to Ohio state to to make the college football playoff and to win it. I can do it somewhere else. Well, most of the best players still go to those schools. Yeah. But it opens the door for more schools to, Hey, we made the playoff last year. We can get there again. If you come and come play for us and you can be the difference in us getting to the playoff to winning a game. And then a couple of years later, it's you can be the difference in us getting to the to the playoffs, winning the game, and winning the damn thing, like the whole damn invitation. So I, I think the playoff expanding will help. I think Crystal Ball's recruiting and consistency there will continue to elevate the standard, and Oregon will get closer and closer. It might not be, you know, leaps and bounds every year to where Alabama's at, but if they continue to recruit top ten classes four or five years in a row, six years in a row, it might look like a long ways away in year two of that run. But by year six, you're pretty darn close. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me just kind of one thought before we, oops, before we switch it over to the next question is I I kind of feel, and maybe you disagree, but I feel like this is a little bit what we saw with university of Connecticut and women's basketball in like the Mm -hmm. early 2010s where they were just winning every season. And even before that, but like, where it was so clear every year you go into it being like, oh, it's going to be UConn winning. Who cares? It's, it's a fight for number two. And it's kind of that way with Alabama a little bit. And what we've seen in the last five years or so is that UConn hasn't won a national championship since 2016. Yeah. And in fact, they haven't really been playing in many of these games. You know, um, you know they, they, they've struggled. They haven't played in a national championship since that year, actually. The last four uh, national championships, they haven't been a part of it. So like part of me thinks like what college football really needs a reset here, a little bit of like, it just evens itself out a little bit. And I think Matt brings up a really good point in terms of expansion. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what number they'll hit, but that will even some things out a little bit. And once that takes place, hopefully this gets, gets it to a place where it's not just the top four teams or the top, you know, because you enter these seasons and it's like, there's three teams, you know, are going to be in there at the end of the season, basically. And then it's just kind of like, a, who's going to be that fourth. It needs to be a point where that's not the case. And I do think Oregon is capable of, of getting to the game. My concern right now is just can they win it? And, and I, I kind of am waiting to see how they actually handle those sort of opportunities going forward, assuming they get some of them. Because it, it's tough. It's tough to compete with these Blue Bloods that have these talented teams like this where it's just like up and down the roster. Their second unit has almost, almost as many four- and five-star recruits as, as your starters because that's what it is at Alabama. Yeah. Their whole team is is, is, is the uh, All-American rosters from a couple of years ago. So that's that's the uphill battle. Next one from at InnoAce445. What's the word on 2022 recruits? Matt, that's a pretty darn basic question. In fact, that might be like the fewest words used in a question in the history of our podcast. Somehow you selected it and included it in the show. I included in the show. And guess what? The next one has about the same number of words too. So these questions are great uh, in terms of the number of words. But no, I thought it was good to just do a recruiting update here, Matt. Oregon obviously has landed a a really great start to this 2022 cycle. 
Um, we're talking men's football. We're talking football. We're not talking basketball. Great start to the cycle, but kind of feels like because the spring game didn't have any unofficial visits because you couldn't have fans um, in the stands. That was one of the fallouts of the spring game, not being allowed to have fans is you couldn't bring in recruits and Oregon was going to have recruits. And you look around the PAC 12 and Washington had a spring game that same day. And they had like a couple dozen, three or four dozen recruits sure. there. Oregon would have done the same thing. Does it feel like that stalled things kind of where are you at with everything and, and has the ceiling or anything in your perception changed because of that or, or anything over the last couple of weeks? Um, I mean, I, I'm not like concerned about Oregon um, and they're recruiting right now for 2020. Um, they still have the, the top class in the conference. They're 19th nationally. I think that kind of tells you where the conference is at compared to the rest of the country. If the, the league's best team is 19th, that, you know, the league's probably a little bit behind everybody else, yeah. but I, I do like, what we're seeing from this group, you know, they've got four, four-star commitments. Tanner Bailey's the highest rated guy, four-star pro style quarterback from Gordo, Alabama. He made a self visit and committed to Oregon. Um, Trey John Williams is the top in uh, second best in-state recruit uh, in, in the state of Oregon. And a guy that they've got a verbal commitment from already. Grayson Halton is a four-star defensive tackle from the San Diego area. And then Landon Hullaby is a four-star safety um, from Arlington, Texas, and a high school they've recruited the last couple of years and had some success. And then they've got three three-star guys. And then they have, honestly, like, this is probably a big reason why they're 19th. Um, Percy Lewis is one of the top junior college prospects in the country, but he's not rated right now. Um, we haven't done JUCO rankings yet, so he's committed to Oregon. And he, in – and from a ranking perspective, I'm using this word in a very loose term. He is, you know, weighing down Oregon's recruiting class because he's not ranked. Um, but from the JUCO perspective, from us, you know, the, the, the composite hasn't compiled a ranking yet. Um, for us, he's the number one recruit in the country at, at the JUCO rankings. So, like, that tells you a lot. And he's got offers from Auburn, Mississippi, uh, Missouri, a couple other SEC schools have offered him. Um, a, a guy that there's going to be a ton of you know interest in and his ranking once he gets his composite ranking Oregon's ranking rating from a from a program perspective will go way up um, and it's just you know he's weighing things down because he's unranked right now and it's not no fault to him and it's not a negative on him you know it's just the other services rivals and ESPN haven't gotten their rankings in yet and until they do he's going to be a zero star in the composite rankings which will hurt Oregon's recruiting class so I don't really look at this as a negative. You know, I'm not worried right now of their class. Uh, they're number one in the conference. That's what you always want every year. You want to finish number one no matter where you're at in the national rankings. You want to be the best team in your conference. And then from there, it's can you get into that top 10? And they've got some pieces out there that you know, I think could really turn the needle and, and, and really put Oregon into that discussion where we're talking a four straight year of being the number one class in the conference and a fourth, you know, a what, third straight year of being ranked in the top 10. Um, some of those players that I like, you know, committing to Oregon at some point down the road, Darius Clemens, uh, a four-star guy from Westfield up in the Beaverton, Oregon area. Um, he's got a ton of interest. I think his, his timeline might be slowed down a little bit because of some of these schools that have thrown in offers like in Alabama. Um, but ultimately I think what might do it is Oregon's close to home. They've got success. They're going to have some of your receivers moving on. 
So, you know, I, I think Darius Clemens is a guy you can really put in. I don't want to say put in pencil yet, but you're, you're getting close to writing his name in uh, to being a guy that you kind of count on for this recruiting class to have at the end. Uh, three-star Dominique McKenzie. Um, this is a guy where you know, Utah was one of the few states to be able to play high school football in the fall. Uh, he had a standout year and, and is someone that probably this summer in a camp circuit season could see his stock explode. And he's very close to committing to the Oregon Ducks. Um, five-star offensive tackles, Josh Connolly Jr. and Kelvin Banks are very high on Oregon, both planning to visit the Ducks. Uh, Connolly Jr. is probably Oregon's best chance at landing a five-star in this class. 15th best player overall nationally, regardless of position. Uh, from the Pacific Northwest, plays his prep football up, up in the Seattle, Washington area. And then they've got four-star offensive lineman Malik Agbo, uh, four-star guard George Maley. Um, those two guys are very high on Oregon as well. Um, four-star defensive end Cyrus Moss is one of the best defensive ends in the country. He's going to be trying to take a visit in June, an official visit to Oregon later on in the fall. Uh, this is a guy that Oregon's probably the leader for right now. Um, they're loaded at this, you know, at, you know, at the DN spot, and and they're yet one of the best players in the country is looking at him real hard. Uh, TJ Dudley, an outside linebacker, four-star guy. He's going to be here in June. And, and look, if you're looking for excitement, when will excitement happen? Um, pencil in the month of June because you're going to see about four or five months worth of recruiting from a normal year jam packed into June, because that's the start of the recruiting season. Again, if you will, uh, where Oregon and every other co you know college across the country, they're going to be able to have guys on campus. They're going to be able to hold satellite camps. They're going to have their own high school camps on campus. Official visits can start up again. The NCAA has lifted the dead period and June is going to be absolutely bonkers from a recruiting standpoint. You're going to have about four or five months, probably more of that from a news and from a visit, from an interest, from an offer, from a camp standpoint, all jam packed into 30 days. Like the, the college coaches, like if, if there's one day where they're not either hosting a recruit, traveling to a camp, traveling back from a camp or participating in some kind of camp uh, on campus or off campus, I would be shocked. Like they are going to be all 30 days in the month of June will be full for recruiting in that perspective. Guys that could be committing, you know, who, who are the two guys that, that make the most sense to commit right now um, to Oregon? I, I think they're, they're very close friends and they're both from the San Diego area, uh, four-star athlete, Jaleel Tucker, and then unranked cornerback Jaleel Florence. Um, Florence is a guy that's really skyrocketed up now that camps have opened up again uh, he's received an Oregon offer. He was one, Oregon was one of the first schools to offer him a scholarship. And then everybody, Washington offered. I think UCLA has offered. Oregon State has offered. You know, a lot of the Pac-12 schools, once Oregon offered him a scholarship, have jumped in with their offers as well. And I think both those guys were here for that spring scrimmage that was open to fans. They were in attendance. They were in the stadium watching, checking things out. I think if you're looking for two guys to become ducks in the immediate future, it's probably those two players. All right. Let's, uh, let's kind of wrap this show up here with a question from at Alex PDX 88. Why is everyone leaving Oregon women's basketball? 
As I promised, another six-word question, Matt. So the trend at the back end of the show is they're short, but they sure are sweet. Yes. Um, this, this, one's not, <laughs> this one's not particularly sweet because this was a tough one to, to sort of to track last uh, a, couple, a couple of days ago um, in terms of the decision for Angela Dugalich to put her name in the transfer portal. Um, Matt and I broke that story on Monday afternoon. Um, this was just the, the fourth player Oregon has seen transfer out of the program since the conclusion of the season in, in, in uh, the month of March. Um, this one is probably the most painful because Dugalich, in theory, had four more years of eligibility. She was a five-star recruit. Um, and honestly, I think a player that Kelly Graves had said you know, numerous times that they thought her upside was really, really high. And this was not a, a player that they thought, oh, she's already kind of reached her ceiling. I think the sense had been, hey, the future's her best games and her best basketball is, is in the years to come, you know, and that might've been as soon as this upcoming season. So that's the news that, that uh, Alex is referring to. She joins Taylor Chavez and Jazz Shelley and Taylor Mike sell as players who've entered the portal. And again, why this one I think hurts a little more. The other three players had already played pretty far into their eligibility and, and he kind of knew the limitations of what they could or could not become. And those were all put on display, I thought, last season. And, like, for the most part, those three players, like, I think kind of you would say were a little underwhelming for the most part. And I don't think Dugalich fits into that. I thought she was pretty impressive when she played. Yeah. She had – when she started, I think she started a couple of games, and she played well in those games. And she had probably the team's best rebounder pound for pound. She averaged four rebounds a game in, like, 13 minutes. I mean, that's pretty darn impressive. So there's the background there. Um, more reporting on that that I'll just share. I don't think this is, like – this one's definitely not done. Like, she's currently – over in Serbia trying to earn a spot on the Serbian women's basketball national team. And she would play in the Olympics this summer. If that does take place, assuming the Olympics do take place as well. Um, so she's over there right now. She's trying to figure things out. She has not ruled out. And this is, I got this from people close to her. I got this from people close to Oregon. She's not ruled out the possibility of returning to Oregon. So there's a possibility she does return. Um, but still doesn't feel great and you know she might come back and it's going to feel a lot better but she might not and that puts Oregon in a tougher spot and so um you know I think Oregon's gonna have to have to hit that transfer portal a lot harder than we thought I had Kelly Graves in a podcast not that long ago and he was saying they weren't gonna hit it at all and now it's like they're gonna take a couple players that's the thing where it, it feels like he has no choice now where he felt good about the roster and where it was at but now that we've seen Jazz Shelley, now that we've seen Angela uh, Dugalich, now that we've seen uh, Mikeskell transfer out, um, you've had a, a you know you, you you've had a roster that was intact, yeah. and now it's come to the case where you whether you were hoping to do it and you you chose not to, now you have to. Now you have to go out and find the player, probably two, right? Like I almost think. One, you know, adding one transfer isn't going to be enough for the depth and the concerns that you might have with this team going forward. Like, I look at this, and it's a weird deal too because Eric, I, I still think their starting five is really good, and it's going to be probably a little difficult to go out there and find a grad transfer or a regular transfer that wants to come to Oregon that's viewed as a top 10 or top 15, top five type available transfer because you're start, you don't really have any starter minutes available to, to offer, I don't think. I mean, Sobley and Prince are going to be your forwards. And then Sure and Parrish and 
Tahina Pow Pow will, will probably be your, your starting guards. And it's, it's, you know, it's going to be difficult. I think to sell it of, Hey, you're the third best transfer available in the country come play, but we really can't guarantee you a, a starting spot. Not that Keller Graves would you know, guarantee it, but it's, sure, yeah. it's like cl- clearly obvious. You're going to have to win a job. It, it's not more than likely you're going to be a starter. Yeah. And, and a couple things on, on this one, I think it's worth noting Oregon had not landed anybody or added anybody. Partly that was because they had just lost a bunch of assistants and were, were kind of in the process of finalizing some things. They've, they've since now finalized their staff and we should note right before um, we found out about Angela entering the portal. Mike Moser, a former Oregon men's player, was announced as the, yeah. the, the third and final assistant coach for, for Kelly Graves' women's staff. They'd added Jackie Nairn Hairston um, about a week ago. She'd coached at Oregon in the past as a director of basketball ops um, kind of person and, and had then moved on to Arizona, won an, almost won a national championship with the Wildcats um, earlier in April. But uh, yeah, so like they are now in the position where they can kind of put their foot down and, and, and kind of start working on this and try to build this roster and figure out what they need to address. And they now have the manpower and, and woman power with, with both Nairn Harrison and Mike Moser. And then uh, Jody Barry is the longtime assistant who stuck around when Mark Campbell took off to Sacramento State. So they now have the full complement of weapons to do that. And I think you're going to start and I'll certainly have some updates in terms of some names to know on, on duckterritory.com um, this week or, or next week. And, and probably next time we're on a podcast, I can dis- disclose some of those and who knows, maybe something happens, but yeah. So that that's, that's, I do think they will add somebody. They're probably going to add a guard. They're probably add a forward. Or I think they can use depth at both. And then just to the, before we wrap this up with one last question, that's kind of a funny question um, in terms of the, to the why of, of why Angela is leaving. Um, I, it, this was not a the culture is broken thing as much as it's a thing of, hey, she didn't really have a lot of her friends and close people that were close to her and big parts of why she came to Oregon that stuck around because Campbell and Lopez and, and th- those two coaches were a big part in getting her to Eugene. And then her four closest friends, from what I've understood, from what I heard from somebody who would know, um, all have either transferred or graduated. You know, a couple of the girls that graduated had really taken her under her wing, um, you know, as forwards, as big players, and had done that. And then a couple of guards were coming for a couple, you know, a couple of her closest friends, and they just transferred. And now she's over in Serbia trying to sort this out. So that's kind of the why to this. I mean, I was even told she's aware that she might transfer somewhere and play less minutes at that new spot. Um, that this is not like a this was not playing time related. This was not culture related. This was like just straight up socially. It was a tough year. And Kelly Graves even mentioned on the podcast when he came on that, like, you know, I asked him what was some of the surprising things people wouldn't know. Like Angela Dugalich said she hadn't even been to the other side of campus. Like there was a bunch of buildings she hadn't been on. She hadn't been outside of basically, you know, the Oregon women's basketball little bubble of like, Hey, we're going to, these are the classrooms we go to. Here's the practice facility. Here's how we get to the airport to go to away games. Like she hadn't really done any exploring on her own because of COVID. So like socially, you can think of that from somebody who's from the state of Illinois, how that might be tough. So there's a lot at play there. I, I, I don't think it's quite ready to, to like, you know, light your hair on fire and say the sky is falling. But this is certainly not the offseason you were hoping to have when you went out and competed hard down the stretch of the season and had pretty much everybody set to return. To lose four, it kind of puts a tough, I think, taste in your mouth. And now it'll be you know, the staff's job to, to go out and, and find some players to, to solidify this roster. And, and, and hopefully the big recruit is getting Angela back in the fold. Real quick right. for, I, I don't want to end the show here. Uh, um, or I don't want to move on. I want to ask you a couple questions just yeah. about basketball from the women's standpoint. 
um, because I don't know when we're going to talk about these assistant coaches that are being hired. Yeah. So let's point. take that opportunity. Um, your thoughts on Jamie Nairn Harrison and Mike Moser being hired, like what, what were your first initial reactions and just kind of how can they maybe help this program? Yeah, Nairn Harrison made sense given the fact that I think you expected at least one of these hires to be somebody who'd worked for Coach Graves before. And you go look through his his list of, of kind of his coaching tree, and there's a lot of people that, that made sense for that. But she was someone who was pretty easy to, to dial in on. She just had had a lot of success recruiting to the Arizona Wildcats. In fact, you go and look at her success there. She'd, she'd helped recruit a couple of players that Oregon wanted in the 2021 and 2020 classes to Arizona, you know, over Oregon. And so that she'd had some success on the trail. She brings that to Eugene, um, you know, and then, of course, like I said, that kind of experience with Kelly Graves, that part, I think, is significant. And, and again, having somebody who's coached in the conference, she's now coached at, at Oregon and Washington State and, and then at Arizona. She's done a little bit of a tour. She's been around this region. She knows, you know, the schools in the conference. That one made, I think, a lot of sense. Moser is probably a little bit of a, um, I don't want to say it's a harder sell, but it, it's it's less a less direct story because it made sense for Nared Harrison to come back. But right. Moser, it's like somebody who hasn't, coached women's basketball I don't think at all um, he's not really been even an assistant coach and the origin of this and I know that there's been some other reporting on this but Max Graves one of Kelly Graves' sons worked in the Dallas Mavericks front office and happened to be in the same department as Mike Moser and those two kind of built the friendship from there obviously the Oregon connection and, and and when this jobs these jobs opened up it was kind of like hey this guy might actually be a good fit and so it's pretty I think that one's really kind of an interesting one um, and I'm excited to kind of see how that plays out because this is a little unusual to have a, a coach take you know this type of a job at Oregon, one of the premier coaching positions in the country for women's basketball, to bring in somebody who has literally zero coaching experience, especially with, from a women's perspective. Like that's kind of a risk, but I know that there's a lot of optimism from what he can do. Um, you know, from a recruiting perspective, obviously he's going to have to kind of create his own network there because he just doesn't have a lot of history. Um, doing it, but like I think it's one you certainly are optimistic with, and and hey, it's it's pretty cool, by the way, Matt. Like this guy was playing at Oregon the same time Joe Young was playing at Oregon. Like he was not <laughs> playing at Oregon very long ago, and now he's back in Eugene as an assistant coach for for one of the programs. Like that's it's just like kind of a cool story when it comes together like that. I, I think his path to Oregon uh, is probably a little unorthodox, kind of unusual. Because like Agreed. I said, he has no college experience, but I think his resume is certainly uh, warranted. He's certainly qualified. I mean, he worked within the Dallas Mavericks organization, like you said, from an NBA standpoint. I mean, he's he was coaching and working at the highest level of this sport, men or women's. So I look at this and think, you know, he's he's got the the resume, if you will, to coach at this level. He just hasn't done this specific thing at the collegiate level. And, you know, he's an up and coming guy, a younger guy. And I, I'm sure he will be kind of viewed as one of the players that, Hey, like, cause recruiting is a grind. Like, like you have to be able to just consistently recruit 365 days out of the year. And I, I think some of it naturally, you know, falls on some of the younger players or younger coaches in the profession mm -hmm. to kind of, be on the staff and, and that's not their only job and that's not the only reason that they're there, but that's a big part of their responsibility is it's every day having to do something from a recruiting standpoint. And I think that's probably where from an off the court 
area, he will help immensely because he's got a lot of time. He's got that grind. He's got that drive to, to get into the profession and, and work his way up. And then on the field, like, I mean, super successful player as, as he is by himself. And then now has, has got the NBA resume as well. So I think it's a really cool story. And I'm excited to see kind of where he progresses. Um, from a staff standpoint, they still have one position open, right? Yeah, they got to get a director of basketball operations hired, and I'm, I'm imagining that's something that we'll hear sooner than later as well. That's a that's like that's like your fifth most important right. staff member on a basketball team. You got your head coach, your assistant coaches, and the director of basketball ops does a lot of the the, the stuff behind the scenes that doesn't get like maybe uh, appreciated like it should, but does a lot of the lot of the, like the kind of heavy lifting. So that was a job where um, you mentioned Chavi Lopez went to Sacramento State. His wife Megan Lopez had held that position for about half a decade, and, and she followed. Campbell and, and, and her husband down there. So that, that's one more spot that's open. Um, I'm sure that they'll announce something sooner than later. Um, but that, that's the last part to finishing the staff. But fortunately, you get the assistants announced. They're the ones that do the recruiting. And that's really what Oregon really needs right now is to go add a couple of players, right. I think, for, for their roster. We do have a bonus question this week, and it's not a serious question. So that's why we're tossing it at the end here from at Duck for Quacks. Now that we can see your beautiful faces, and that is a real kiss-ass way to start anything, during this podcast, how long do we have to wait until you guys place a friendly wager that ends with the loser having to do slash wear something ridiculous? Hashtag ads and audibles. Hashtag someone will unfortunately have to wear Husky gear at some point. That might be, we also had a record for the shortest questions. That might be the record for the longest hashtag we've ever had. Uh, Matt, what do you think? I don't think, think I've ever gonna... purchased a Washington Huskies piece of clothing. I, I don't think I've ever purchased any clothing from out from growing up as a kid, being in college, fresh out of college before I got this job of anything organ related outside of two different things. One, um, oh boy, I grew up as a kid being an Arizona Wildcat basketball fan. Um, so I have, I, to this day, I still have them. And I also think they're just some of the best college basketball shorts in a uniform history. Um, so I have, I have a pair of Arizona Wildcat basketball shorts that I have. And I, to this day, I only really wear them when I'm like doing yard work. Or, you still have them. Wow. I still have them. Um, and then I also have, I got those in like high school. So like 03, 02. 20 years. So, so they're, they're 20 years old now. Um, and that's crazy to think about. And then I <laughs> also at one point in time, I somehow lost them. And I'm extremely pissed off about it. I also had Kansas Jay, uh, Jayhawk basketball shorts that had the the Jayhawk like logo on the side, and I bought those because I thought those were sweet looking. And again, those were high school. I had this thing for college basketball shorts, like Clearly. team gear in high school. So uh, those were a couple that I owned. I, I don't I, think I, I've ever owned anything that's like. So I would have to go out and buy something, and I, I've kind of become very stingy with spending money and I'm not going to be spending money on anything. So you're not going to get me to agree on wearing Husky gear unless you're going to buy it and make me wear it. But I still wouldn't do that. I'm just as stingy, if not more stingy than you are, Matt. So there's oh, no way I'm, buy, I'm, buy, I'm the most stingy person out there. Like I just don't buy anything. Um, so I will not be buying any Husky gear. I will say I, there are um, quite damaging photos of me in a Washington Husky baseball cap when I was about four years, five oh, years old. No. Um, I was, uh, I w before I learned the good news, I was, uh, I was rooting for, for Washington when I was very little cause I grew up in Seattle. And so there's, uh, 
So there's there's some images that I hope don't make their way around the internet of me as a youngster wearing with my bright blonde hair and my Nike or my uh, yeah my, my Washington bat, baseball hat. So um, so I sadly I do I don't have that anymore. I don't know what happened to that. That would have been like 30 years ago. So I don't know where those have gone. But there are I did have one at some point. So I just full admission there. Um, in terms of this talk discussion here, Matt, like. What, do we want to do something like this during the season? Maybe, maybe we make some sort of wild predictions that we're leading into the game and the loser has to wear something on the following Monday show. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of how we want to do this. Boy, I, I would much rather be a loser has to edit the show than. <laughs> Let's keep it the way it is where Matt edits all the shows and I'm just <laughs> always the winner. I mean, that seems great to me. Uh, because that would be, I, I think that would be more, uh, incentive for you and I to really hone in on uh, getting some of these predictions right or whatnot, because if it's, Hey, we don't have to edit the show. Like at least from my standpoint, like I've gotten used to having to edit it. And like you said, you, you don't. And so you got a lot of free time on that, on that side of things. So uh, you don't want to lose that. And I want to gain that. That might be the way the wager right there. That's not that fun for the the viewers, though. We got to find something. We have to. It doesn't have to be Washington, but maybe we should wear like a hat a hat of shame on Monday after after each game or something like that. I don't know. We could do we could do a tinfoil hat for like hot takes. Like you're just crazy conspiracy thinker, you know, thinking that this was going to happen. And so when we do the next predictions, you got to wear that or something. That's like the first thing I've thought of. I like it. And unfortunately, my arts and craft skills are not great. So I might need some assistance in, in constructing my, my tinfoil hat. I don't know how good I would do it that I'd probably just end up wearing just like a, like a sheet of tinfoil over my head. And I don't think yes. that would be particularly great. So I like that. We'll, we'll keep, we'll discuss it for those listening. Hey, let's, 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 let's make the decision. If you're interested in this idea and you want us to wear something, we're in a podcast. What would you want us whoa, to wear? We're already whoa, telling you. We're already telling you we're not buying anything. So we're not going to spend any money. And if you want to send us some weird stuff, I don't know if we want to include our addresses. <laughs> you keep opening this weird door, and I'm trying to close it, and you keep opening. Right. Next thing we know, we're going to get someone sending us a robe and slippers or some weird kinky thing, and I'm not even coming close to that. If it fits my, I mean, I could use some slippers. I've got size one and a half. Size uh, large men for uh, the, the robe but uh okay maybe we don't want to we don't need to get do off this, this topic okay. because it's going right. down the path wrap, right, wrap it up matt let's wrap it <laughs> put a fork in this one all right that's been it unfortunately we have to <laughs> add weird things to send us conversation uh because the podcast is running out of time we've got to get off the show appreciate right. everybody for sending in your questions we really appreciate it even the last one uh and until then you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Gather your besties. We are very exclusive. And get ready. Mom, go make snacks. For sure, Regina. Yeah. For the movie that hits like a bus in a good way. No one dies. Mean Girls. Made it PG 13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus.